Well, good morning. It's good to see each one of you this morning. And I love that video that we just saw from N.T. Wright as we think about this open here endeavor that we're going to be doing together starting in January, the importance of opening uh, God's word together. And I love that video for two reasons. One, because of who N.T. Wright is and and because of what he says in the video. Um, If you're not familiar with N.T. Wright, he is probably... uh, one, the leading scholar, if not the leading scholar, on Jesus and Paul uh, in the world today. He's written some of the most important scholarly works on those, on those books, but he's also a pastor. He's a bishop in the Church of England and has written some deeply pastoral works. And so for someone who probably knows more about the Bible than any of us ever will, for him to say, the thing that I do every single morning is I get in the Bible. He's so passionate about being changed by living in that story. Again, I love that. And I also love what he says in that video, because as we were thinking ahead to open here, this idea that we want to be opening the Bible daily together in 2013. One of the things we talked about is sometimes we just feel like we don't get anything out of it when we do it. But I love what he said in there, in the video. He said that even there's something, there's always something. I don't know what's going to be, but there's always something that comes. And he says, even when it isn't one thing that grabs me, he says, there's a sense of being enfolded within that story again. And I think that's the thing. There won't always be a moment when we're reading where it's like, man, this is just a profound thing that's going to change my life. But there's a sense of living back in that story again. And I love how N.T. Wright frames that. If you are, haven't been around lately and you haven't heard about Open Here, what we're doing in Open Here is starting in January, we're going to read the Bible together. Um, and our goal is to be opening the scriptures every day. Um, together. And there's lots of ways. If you go onto our website, you can sign up to receive reading plans. We have a reading plan that will take you through every chapter of the Bible, a reading plan that will take you through the whole story of the Bible. There's lots of ways to get that through PDF, through email, through RSS feeds. There's lots of ways to get involved in participating in that way. There's also a table of resources in the back if you're interested in maybe getting a study Bible to help you. Um, We're going to be doing weekly videos to help us uh, think through the readings. There's lots of things there. If you haven't had a chance to explore open here, I would encourage you to go to the website, check out the resource table. Pastor John, Claire, myself um, would love to do that um, as well. And there's also some stuff in the welcome folder on that um, as well. So now as we turn to look at this passage in Romans 8, um, I'd love to just pause and, and ask for God's help as we look at this text together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful uh, that we are able to come to you Um, if we are in Christ and call you Father. We pray now that by your Spirit, we might see Jesus more clearly um, as a result of having opened this text together, as a result of having worshipped together in this space. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, this week, um, I was thinking about some of my favorite stories, some of my favorite movies and books and in films, and, and what kind of makes them my favorite. What kind of common elements uh, do they have in them that make them my favorite? And uh, whether it's Star Wars, uh, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and if Rachel was up here, she'd be quick to point out that I still have the action figure collection in a box in the basement to prove that I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, you can laugh at that. That's a, it's supposed to be funny. And... Um, you know, maybe not one of the top 10 things to get pastoral credibility, but yes, I, you know, if my 401k doesn't work out, you know, I've always got the Star Wars action collection I can, uh, I can try to sell on eBay. Um, but whether it's Star Wars or a great, you know, Charles Dickens' great classic Little Dorrits or Victor Hugo's Les Mis, these are all great stories of reversal. 
you know, in, in Star Wars, it's Luke Skywalker, sort of the poor moisture farmer on Tatooine who becomes the great Jedi Knight who defeats the Empire. Well, in, in Little Dorrit, it's Little Dorrit, who is this poor girl who's grown up in a debtor's prison her whole life and then finds out that she's heir and her family are heir to a great fortune. In Les Mis, there's the, it's Jean Valjean, right? This, this criminal, this poor, pathetic criminal who becomes a great businessman, a mayor who's good and just. And you, so many of our favorite stories have this element to them, right? Whether it's Lord of the Rings or Cinderella or Slumdog Millionaire, Princess Diaries, Aladdin, Rudy, The Matrix, Pride and Prejudice, all these stories have this reversal element. They feature someone who's insignificant, who's poor, enslaved, unimportant, on the margins, but who over the course of the story ends up in a place of great significance, with great wealth and freedom and hope. So why do these stories resonate with us? Why, why have so many of them been turned into best-selling books and Oscar-winning films? What about these stories continues to draw us in time and time again? And I suspect that it's we wish at some level that these stories were our story. I mean, haven't we all at some point in our lives felt unimportant or invisible or insignificant or trapped or poor? Haven't we all at some point imagined that what it would be like to get a call from a lawyer saying, you are in fact heir to a great fortune? I mean, maybe some of you have gotten the emails from the prince of Nigeria who's told you that you are heir to a great fortune, but, but actually getting a phone call from a legitimate person saying, you are heir to a great fortune. Or maybe you've wondered, what would it be like to marry into the royal family? Or to find yourself to be a hero, a leader of men? You know, as we enter the Christmas season, we're reminded that Christians have always believed that their story is a story like this, a story of great reversal. And during the Advent season, as we explore Romans chapter 8, we are understanding, we're attempting to understand the story behind the story of Christmas, this conspiracy of love. And in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, he's an early church leader, is writing a letter. The book of Romans is a letter. It's a long letter to the church in Rome. He's writing to a group of people he's never met to explain to them the meaning of Jesus' death and life, his birth. What does it mean that this person named Jesus was born in a manger and died on a cross? That's what Paul is unpacking for them in the book of Romans. And so each week as we look at Romans chapter 8, we're asking the question, what does Christmas mean? And last Sunday, um, we looked at the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8, and Pastor Dan Spino, who is here with us, reminded us that Christmas means that there is no condemnation. That Christmas means there's no condemnation. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, those who are in Christ are no longer under God's right, just condemnation for sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is probably my favorite verse in all of the Bible, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the great argument that Paul is unpacking throughout the book of Romans, that he asks the question, how can God be just and the justifier of sinners? If God is the just judge, how can he pardon sinners? And the answer is that he pours out that judgment on his son so that God can be just and be the justifier of sinners. And so what these first 11 verses of Romans were, we looked at last week were dealing with is this idea of, of justification. And in the theological sense, justification has everything to do with God declaring us righteous, declaring us forgiven of our sin. 
And he does this on the base of the f- basis of the finished work of Christ. And you see, when we place our hope and our trust in Christ, when we are in Christ, God declares that we are forgiven, that we are not guilty. So justification has this law court idea, this, this kind of forensic concept, this legal dynamic to it. And it's the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel because it addresses our greatest need, our need for forgiveness. However, even though justification is the primary, it comes first and it's fundamental, it's the foundation, even though it's the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, it is not the highest privilege of the gospel. Let me say that again. Even though justification, what we looked at last week, is the highest, or rather is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, it's not the highest privilege of the gospel. So what is the highest privilege of the gospel? that the gospel bestows on us. It's adoption. J.A. Packer, the British-born Canadian theologian, he puts this so clear. I love the way he says it. He says, as justification is the primary blessing of the gospel, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests upon it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. He says, adoption is higher because of the richer relationship that it involves. So you see, yes, that Christmas does mean, I'm going to move this over so I don't trip on it. Um, Yes, Christmas does mean that there is no condemnation. But Christmas also means that slaves become sons. Christmas means that slaves become sons. This is the great great reversal story in the gospel, that slaves to sin become sons of God. You see, in the gospel, God not only forgives us, but he adopts us as sons. And now the language of sons here is very intentional um, because in the Greco-Roman context in which Paul is writing, only sons, only male heirs could be full, um, could fully inherit. They could be the only ones who could be fully adopted as heirs. And so when Paul uses the language of sonship here, to our ears, it may seem odd to call both, um, to all people, but all Christians, men and women, sons. It might seem archaic at best or, or even sort of offensively patriarchal to refer to men and women as sons. But for Paul's original readers, for him, especially for his, his female hearers, to hear that they could be sons, that they could inherit with all that that meant, and that they weren't excluded on the basis of their gender in the way that they were in their culture was such good news. So calling all Christians, men and women, sons, is no more odd than calling all Christians, men and women, the bride of Christ. So the biblical authors are using these metaphors um, that sort of cross gender lines to communicate the richness of our relationship with God. So we are all together the bride of Christ. We are all together sons of God. And this week we're going to see that Christmas means that slaves become sons. You see, the conspiracy of love in Christmas means that Christmas is about much more than just one little family in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It is about God's grand plan to adopt us into his family, to turn slaves into sons. So in Romans chapter 8, in verses 12 through 17, which, which Claire read for us, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul outlines here what it means to move from being a slave to a son. In this passage, we're going to see that sons have a new freedom, that sons have a new family, and that sons have a new inheritance. So a new freedom, a new family, and a new inheritance. 
So first in verses 12 and 13, we see that sons have a new family, Paul write, or have a new freedom. Paul writes, so then brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is where Paul starts us here. Now, there are two important things to notice about these, these verses. The first is that sin, which Paul mentions here, makes us slaves. And second, that the gospel grants us freedom from that slavery. So that sin makes us slaves and the gospel grants us freedom from that slavery. So Paul makes the point that we are debtors, but not to the flesh. And later on in the text, he's going to use this language of a spirit of slavery. So what does he mean that we're not debtors to the flesh? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that this imagery of flesh is, doesn't mean our physical bodies. It doesn't mean the, sort of the, the meat that's on our bones. Um, what he means here, or, or even that our, he doesn't even refer to our appetites, like our appetite for food or drink or sleep or sex. That's not what he's talking about when he says flesh. And some translations will even bring in the idea of a, of, a, of a sinful nature you might have in your text. But really the idea of fleshness in here, fleshiness here, is that it sums up all that we often call the world, all that is characteristic of a life that is in rebellion against God. So there's nothing inherently evil or wrong with, with us and, our, and our, our bodies or with physicality stuff. I mean, matter matters to God. He made a lot of it, and in Genesis, he called it very good. So it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with being physical or physicality, but what's wrong is this fleshiness in the sense of being a life in rebellion against God. So how then does sin make us slaves? You know, as a culture, in our cultural context, our highest value is freedom. Really, we want to be free, right? That, that's what it means even to be an American, is to have this freedom. However, because we have rebelled against God, we can never really be as free as we aspire to be. This is the great irony. Because of this rebellion, we can never really be as free as we aspire to be. And actually, one of the people who points this out so clearly is um, someone who isn't a Christian, David Foster Wallace, the kind of postmodernist writer. He passed away a number a couple years ago. Um, but he has written, uh, he did a commencement address in which he made some profound points about who we are as human beings. And David Foster Wallace makes the point that we were designed to worship, that we are worshiping creatures. And he actually calls us homo religiosio, man the worshiper. And he says in this commencement address, and I think that, and I just want to read out some of this address to you because I think it's really powerful. He says, most people think, hey, I'm just working hard to be a good writer, or I'm just seeking to find someone to love me, or I'm working out so I can be a good steward of my body, or I'm working hard to accomplish something in politics, or so I can have a good career, or just make a little money for security. But Wallace says it's never just that. He says what's really happening when we do those things is that we're worshiping. He goes on and he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. And what he goes on to say, because again, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, but he says the only compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is he says pretty much anything else will eat you alive. He says the compelling reason for choosing God or some kind of spiritual thing is that anything else you worship will eat you alive. It makes you a slave. And then he goes through this list. He says if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth, he says. He says, worship your body, beauty, sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, he says, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being smart, and you end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And I felt like that in college all the time. Like all of a sudden someone was going to find out that I wasn't as smart as I was, I was trying to make myself out to be. Because we were meant to love and worship God first and foremost, when we make money, sex, intellect, power into ultimate things, they eat us alive. They make us slaves. That's never enough. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller in New York says, there's never been a sinful heart that said, I've had enough success. I've had enough love. I've had enough approval. I've had enough comfort. It's never enough. And actually, Charles Dickens describes the same phenomena in, in, in The Christmas Carol. I don't know if any of you have seen that down at the rep uh, right now. But do you remember the ghost of Marley when he comes to Scrooge? And Scrooge sees his chains and he asks him about the chains. Do you remember what Marley says when Scrooge asks about the chains? Marley says, I wear the chains I forged in life. I made it link by link, yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will. And of my own free will, I wore it. You see, we have the illusion that we're being free while all the while we're just making these chains these things that are eating us alive. There's not the true freedom. However, in the gospel, when we are adopted as sons, we experience a new freedom. When our loves are reordered so that God is the ultimate thing in our lives, we are no longer held captive to the things that were never enough. We've been made alive, and now we have the ability to choose. And this is Paul's point in this text, that you are no longer a debtor to the flesh. You don't have to live like that anymore. We can live according to the flesh, or we can choose to put it to death. And Paul is saying, you are no longer a debtor to the flesh, so stop behaving as if you were a debtor to the flesh. Stop living like you are. Stop living like you're enslaved to that. I was thinking about this this week, and, you know, about six months ago, when Rachel and I bought our home uh, here in Brookside, uh, I became a debtor to Wells Fargo Mortgage Bank. I mean, I've only been paying this loan for about six months, so I owe them a lot of money. I owe them a lot of money. And so there's a sense in which, you know, and I dutifully have money that goes to them every month. You know, it automatically withdraws and goes to them. And so it, there's a real sense in which I'm a slave to that loan. Wells Fargo owns me. I mean, I have to give them this check every month. But imagine if someone tomorrow shows up at my house, says, you know, here's the deed to your house. We paid off the loan. You own this home. It's yours. You're no longer a debtor. How foolish would it be for me to keep sending this payment every month, right? And Paul's point is here, if you are in Christ and you continue to live according to the flesh, according to the system of the world, you are doing something that's exactly that absurd. You're no longer a debtor. That no longer controls. You don't have to live that way any longer. So so why do we continue to live like this? Well, because for so long it was automatic. It was all we knew, right? It was just our routine, I mean, I have it set up with my mortgage payment, right? It's an automatic withdrawal from my account. I don't think about it. It's just automatic. It just happens. And we've been so ingrained in that pattern of living that even when we're free, it's like we don't even know necessarily how to live in that freedom. And it's almost more comfortable to go back to this old way. But because we have been adopted and we are now children of God, just because that's now true of us, don't think that that system, the world flesh, will stop trying to tell you what to do. It will continue to try to define you. 
I had a professor in college who gave this illustration. It was so helpful to me about who's your authority. So imagine that you're in the army. When you join the army and you go to basic training, you have a drill instructor. And that drill sergeant, that drill instructor is everything in your life. He can tell you to do anything. So if he orders you to stop and give, drop and give him 50 push-ups, you have to do it. You have to obey. You have to listen and obey. You have no choice. You are in this boot camp. He is your authority. But then imagine fast-forwarding now a number of years, and you're no longer in the army. And uh, you're now a civilian. You finished your term in the army, and you're walking down the sidewalk, and you bump into this drill sergeant. And immediately, sort of your, your heart begins to beat a little faster. Your stomach kind of tenses up. I mean, you remember this guy. He made your life miserable, and he had this authority over you. And he bumps into you, and he says, drop and give me 50 push-ups in that moment. Now, you may be, in that moment, tempted out of habit or fear to do and obey what he says. But because he no longer has authority over you, he has no more right to tell you what to do than than my three-year-old niece can tell you to drop and give you 50 push-ups and make you do it. You're no longer under his authority. And this is Paul's point that when we continue to obey sin, it's like we're obeying someone who has no right to tell us what to do any longer. We have now have the freedom to fight. You know, we may not feel free at times. We may not even be comfortable being free. But in those moments, you must remember that sin has no right to tell you what to do any longer. You are no longer a debtor to the flesh. You no longer have to obey it. If you are in Christ, then you are a son of God. You are no longer a slave. Sin no longer has any authority to tell you what to do. You have the freedom to fight. And often I can slip into the mentality of thinking, oh, the little sin in my life isn't that big of a deal. I don't really have to fight that hard, but it's a lie. We do have to fight hard. And this activity is, is an, uh, it's part of our effort, but it's also never distinct from the work that God is doing in and through us. So what's controlling your life? Whose voice are you listening to? Whose authority are you under? Are you experiencing the freedom of sonship, this new freedom that comes? Are you still experiencing enslavement to sin, to this old master? Well, when slaves become sons, sons experience a new freedom. However, that's not all. When sons become, or when slaves become sons, they also become part of a new family. And that's what Paul points out in, in verses 14 and 15. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So what does it mean to be a part of this new family, to be a child of God, to receive the spirit of adoption that Paul talks about here? Well, first it's important to point out that we are children of God by adoption, that when we're born, we aren't naturally God's children. When we are born, we don't have God as a father. We have him as a judge. This is Paul's point in the whole first part of Romans, is that when we're born, we don't have God as father. We have him as a judge. But when we place our faith and trust and hope in Christ, we are reborn, we are adopted, we're moved from this one, from being in Adam to being in Christ, from one family to another. As J.I. Packer puts it, he says, we become children of God through the supernatural gift of God. In receiving Christ, we receive this gift of adoption. 
So what does this mean for us? What does it mean to be a part of this family? Well, first it means that we are led by the Spirit. Paul says in that first verse that all who are sons of God are led by the Spirit. And the idea of being led by the Spirit doesn't specifically refer to decision-making, like, you know, I'm led by the Spirit in making these big decisions about where where should I live or go to school. The idea is that when we're led by the Spirit, it's the whole of our life is under the influence and the control of the Spirit. That's the idea of being led by the Spirit. And Paul's point is that a Spirit-dominated life means that you are a son, and that being a son means that you have a spirit-dominated life. These are, the, these are the same things. To say that your life is led by the spirit means that you are a son of God. To be a son means that you're led by the spirit. So first, it means that we are led by the spirit. Second, it means that we have God as our father and Jesus as our brother. You see, as children of God, we are invited into a relationship with the triune God of the universe. If you look at the Old Testament, the Bible actually refers, uses this language of adoption for the nation of Israel, for God's people in the Old Testament. But what Paul is saying is now through Christ, all Christians can be a part of God's people. It's no longer limited to a certain ethnic group or a certain um, nation state, but that all people in Christ can be adopted into God's family, into his people. So Jesus in the New Testament teaches us to pray to our Father who art in heaven. God's people in the Old Testament didn't relate to God as their Father in this intimate way. And Jesus models this. He invites us into it. He makes it possible. I love that that J.I. Packer, he says that the Christian name for God is Father. What's the Christian name for God? It's Father. This is what's unique about Christianity, being able to call God our Father. Because of adoption, we now have God as our father, but it also means that we have Jesus as our brother. You see, God's goal in salvation is that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. C.S. Lewis calls it that we become little Christ, that we would become like Christ, and that Christ would become the firstborn of many brothers. If you look down, if you have your Bible open, if you look down to verse 29, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, but listen to what Paul says in verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So when we're adopted as sons, we have God as our father and we have Jesus as our brother. The Bible refers to those who are in Christ as brothers of Christ. He is our true older brother. So you see how the Christian is one who is enfolded into the life of the Trinity. We have God as our father. We have the spirit of adoption. We have Jesus as our brother. We're invited into this life. Third, the spirit of adoption means that we have a new identity that we don't have a spirit of fear any longer. To be adopted means that we have a change of identity. If you look at the conversation starter in the welcome folder, there's a great passage, a great little excerpt there that deals with some background on what it means to be adopted. I would encourage you to take some time to reflect on that, to discuss it with someone. You see, we have received a new identity because we are part of a new family. The spirit that we have received is not a spirit of bondage or fear of enslavement. Rather, it's the spirit of adoption. We no longer have to fear judgment or rejection from God or from anyone else. You see, we are no longer slaves to what other people think about us. We're no longer slaves to how we look, how people perceive us, how smart we are. I remember in seminary, the first time I, 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 got, a, I got a B, and it was the best thing that happened. because I was like, I don't even have to try to, to attain this perfect 4.0 GPA anymore. 
We're no longer slaves to a fear of rejection. It doesn't matter how good of an athlete we are. Whatever it is that you're looking to for that identity, you're no longer a slave to it. We don't have to be afraid anymore because we can cry, Abba, Father. Abba was the Aramaic word for father. It's this intimate term, this closeness that we in our moments of hurt and distress and fear can cry out, Abba, Father. We have this father who loves us, who cares for us. In our greatest distress, in our greatest moments of fear, we always can know that we have God as our father. So the question is, whose approval are you really living for? Because you now, if you are in Christ, you are a son because in Jesus Christ, when, when the Father looks at you through the eyes, when he looks at you through Christ, he says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. This is what the Father says to Jesus in the moment of his baptism. If you, if you know the Gospels, Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, and the Father speaks to him and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And what's so important to recognize about that moment in Jesus' life is that in that moment, he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't been tempted in the wilderness, he hasn't healed anyone, he hasn't died on the cross. You see, Jesus, in that moment, he, whole life, is ministering out of the Father's approval. He's not ministering for the Father's approval. Do you see what a dramatic difference that makes? That when, because of what Christ has done for you, you already have the maximum amount of approval that the Father can give to you. So then you live out of that. You don't live for the Father's approval. You already have that because you have received the spirit of adoption, you have received that you are now a son or a daughter, and he looks at you through the lens of Christ and what Christ has accomplished. He says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And I know this is hard for all of us, and, and I know my own tendency is to find my identity in, in other things, and particularly for me in my work. And I knew this a while back. It was as Brookside was getting started, and I was like, you know, it was so easy for me to get wrapped up in my identity as, as this, as, as being the pastor of, of this campus. And the fear that then comes with that, well, what if people don't come back? Or what if it doesn't grow? Or, you know, all these things that can come into the doubts. Or what if people don't like what we do? And so I actually took one of, and I just went a moment of kind of thinking through that. I, I took one of my business cards out, and, and I have a picture of this here. I took one of my business cards out, and I just keep this in, in, my, in my Bible, and I just scratched out the title on my business card. And I wrote instead, Beloved Son of the Father, Brother of the King. That's who I am. That's who you are if you're in Christ. I mean, you may be a mom, you may be a business leader, you may be an athlete, you may be all those things, but who you really are if you are in Christ is the beloved son or daughter of the Father. And have the King as your brother. You've got to remember who you really are. That's the only way you're going to make progress in the Christian life. You remember that. You remember who you are. There's a great scene in, in The Lion King, and all these kind of great reversal stories. If you remember the, the Disney Lion King movie, the kind of the turning point in the film, Simba the lion, he's kind of been off out in the wilderness. He's kind of been doing his own thing. He's living in fear of regret. He thinks he killed his dad and all this stuff. And his father comes to him kind of in this vision in the cloud, if you remember this. And what is Mufasa, his father, you know, the great lion Mufasa, what does he say to Simba in that moment? This is, again, this is the turning point in the film. Do you remember what Mufasa says? 
He doesn't tell Simba, you need to get your act together. You need to try harder. You need to, to get in line. This is what he says to him. He says, you have forgotten who you are. He says, you are my son. Remember, 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 remember. He says, you have forgotten who you are. You are my son. You see, our goal in opening this book every day, our goal in coming together in corporate worship is to remember who we are. Remember that we are sons of God, daughters of the King, first and foremost. I mean, part of my goal every week when I stand up here and preach is to remind you who you are, to remind you that, yes, you are a sinner, but that through Jesus Christ you have been saved and you have the absolute approval of the Father as a result. You are no longer slaves. You are sons and daughters. So when slaves become sons, they experience a new freedom. They enjoy a new family. And when slaves become sons, they look forward to a new inheritance. This is what Paul shows us in the last two verses of this text. He says in verse uh, 17 there. Um, Let me turn back over here. Starting in verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You see, being a child of God means that you are an heir, that your brother Jesus, is you are a co-heir with him. And the whole point of adoption in the ancient world, and this is what you kind of read in that excerpt, the whole point of adoption in the ancient world was to have an heir that you could give your stuff to when you died. Now, God isn't ever going to die, but we have this inheritance that because we are now sons and daughters, that we are sons, that we have this inheritance, that we are heirs with Christ. This means that everything that has happened to Jesus will happen to us also. So will there be suffering? Yes, but we will also be glorified We will be satisfied and content. We will have the great approval and acceptance that we have always longed for, both now and we will experience it in full one day. See, the essence of this inheritance, this new thing that we get, this heir, being co-heirs with Christ, it's all the promises that God has made to his people all throughout the ages, beginning with Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jay, all through. That is now true of you. You are heir to those promises. You are heir to the promise that you can look forward to the blessings of a new heavens and a new earth. The promise of a new family. The promise of a new blessing. The promise of true rest. That you will receive rest. That you will receive the comprehensive flourishing, shalom, delight, peace, wholeness. These are all yours if you are in Christ. Because you have God as your father and Jesus as your brother. We began this morning by talking about great stories of reversal. Stories where people went from being poor to being rich, from being obscure to being noticed, from being oppressed to victorious, from slave to free. And that story is your story if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ. However, that great reversal story that's true of you is only true because of a story of an even greater reversal. The story where the one who is rich became poor for our sakes. 
The story of the one who was the being at the center of the universe became obscure and was born as a baby in Bethlehem. The one who had all power became oppressed, beaten, crucified. The one where the Son of God became a slave. You see Paul in another letter that he wrote, in the letter of the Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippian church that, the, that Jesus came and he didn't count equality with God to be uh, something to be grasped, something to be clinged on to. But he says instead he took on the form of a servant. Literally the word, it's doulos. The word is, you could be translated slave. He took on the form of a slave. So the great reversal that allows us to have our great reversal is that the very Son of God became a slave that we might become sons. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can call you Father. That the Christian name for God is Father that we can relate to you as sons, as daughters. Father, help us to remember this week as we go throughout the Christmas season that we would remember, remember, remember that we are your sons and daughters. That we are already loved before we do anything. Not because of anything that we're done, or even because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. God, may we live out of that. May it shape who we are. May it shape who we are as a church. That we would be people who have such great confidence and humility because we know who we are. That we'd be able to laugh at ourselves. That we'd be able to, to enjoy our time with one another because we're not constantly wrestling for approval or, or trying to hide or shift. Or That we would just be content. That we would rest in what it means to be a son. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.